Welcome to the Periphery from the Pulaski Institution. I'm your host, Alan Elrod, and our guest today, all the way in Australia, is Dr. Justin Ellis. Dr. Justin Ellis is a senior lecturer in criminology at the Newcastle School of Law and Justice. His research into digiqueer criminology critically analyzes the relationship between digital media, technology, criminal justice, and queer representation and resistance. And his broader research focuses on the relationship between digital technologies, on institutional accountability, and responsible government. And in addition to that, he's done some very interesting research that is very relevant to some of the conversations happening right now in the U.S. and elsewhere on uh, Drag Queen Story Hour and public responses to that. So, uh, Justin, I'm really excited to have you on. Thanks, Alan. And it's great to be talking with you about these important issues. So I think one of the first things that might stand out to the listener here in the U.S. is just, I think, the, the bare fact that this is a uh, a driving research question for people outside the U.S. I think a lot of Americans probably think of the current moment we're having around drag and trans issues maybe as an acutely American issue. So I think one thing that might be helpful is just placing it into the context that some of your research does in terms of how some of this is unfolding in Australia and in the UK and how that looks like and doesn't look like what's happening here in the US in terms of our, our new debate that's happening right now about these these issues. Yeah, that's that's a really good question, Alan. And I think I think I'd just start with by saying that um clearly much of this is coming out of the United States, as you and your audiences will know. Uh, but what we're seeing, this you know, this combination of networked hate, political opportunism, and the co-option of trans rights and drag performance by malign forces such as right-wing extremists, it has broader reach because of the network capacity of, of digital platforms, for, for example. Uh, and so within that broader context, we've got misinformation and disinformation. And this is, you know, crucial in the sense that, that uh, a lot of these platforms are operating under US freedom of speech protections that are not, that are not often very well qualified and balanced in proportion with other rights. So I think that's definitely impacting us here, for example, in Melbourne, where we've seen a, um, we've seen drag performances cancelled or postponed and we've seen Proud Boys and alleged Nazi neo-Nazis turning up at events and, and harassing people. So it's definitely having an impact here, but I think it's nowhere near to the extent that it's playing out in the US. Yeah, this is actually, I mean, just to be topical, I I, I try to keep up, believe it or not, with, with what happens in Australia. So I, I'd seen that there had been a kind of recent um, issue, right, with a, 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 a legislator, not in the um, Australian Parliament, but in the Victorian Assembly, right, going to this event in Melbourne, this essentially an anti-trans event, and then uh, having to uh, at least disavow the fact that neo-Nazi uh, protesters also sort of showed up. Um, and it's always a little right. I think in general, um, it's never it's never probably a good sign if if the neo-Nazis show up and say, yes, we're on your side. Uh, uh, but I, I also know this has caused quite a bit. What really struck me as interesting about that, that I think is a it, it's something I wanted to pursue. And, and I'll just go ahead and, and do it now, which is she's from a a, a district in in Melbourne. Right. Um and and I think that already reveals a little bit of an interesting wrinkle. Whereas you know, Melbourne being such a big city, I think it would in American politics it would be very hard to imagine someone in say the actual sort of districts around 
New York or Chicago or San Francisco successfully winning uh, on that level of kind of conservative platform. And I'm curious, is this is this because there's a more openness to certain cultural conservative positions in some of these places, or is it because this doesn't actually read in the same way in the politics in Australia in some of the same ways that it does here? Because here it's very much, if you are opposing drag shows or, or trans people, you're sort of very firmly on the, if not the right, really kind of the hard right. Yes, and I, I would agree. It's a similar case here. And, and that particular Victorian uh, politician, I think that, and I'm not sure what her status is at, the, at this point, but uh, but the New South or the federal equivalent was was a woman, uh, Catherine De- Catherine Deves, that was running in the last federal election. And and just to clarify, um, in in terms of the comparison with the United States and maybe major cities and and people with that hard right perspective running, they can definitely run, but um, they they often are not going to win. Definitely not in the lower house. They might get an, an upper house seat because it's not as competitive. But we're we're certainly um, with in our, in our political context, those people are certainly on the fringes. And I think this speaks to another a dimension that differs from aspects of the United States uh, that we'll get into in more detail shortly. But but the um, you know the number of Australians that that don't have a religious affiliation, for example, and therefore political parties are not necessarily going to be able to generate the funds for for, for you know fringe far right views means that as much as those uh, those views get a lot of media amplification, and they definitely do through Murdoch outlets like Sky News in Australia. The likelihood of those people winning and winning over a long time and consistently is pretty low because most Australians, I think, uh, are, um, or at least two thirds of Australians, are, are pretty libertarian in their perspectives. That's that's one of the things that I was excited to, to talk to you about, especially because your research looks at. U.S. and Australia and the U.K. is the the U.S. in that sense is the outlier in terms of our religiosity. I know that Australia and the U.K. are both pretty secular, if in fact very secular, relative to a lot of other countries. And so, you know, when you're looking at you, you mentioned at the very top the 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 fact that a lot of these ideas are able to move now along along digital networks. So when when Australians are interacting with these ideas as they come from the US. Anti-trans thinking and and some of the new fear-mongering around drag shows, a lot of which do have a conservative bent. Some of our most kind of prominent sort of anti-trans and anti-drag show people here, pundits, are people like, you know, Nat Walsh. She was sort of very vociferously identifies as a hardline Christian um, conservative. Um, obviously, politicians across different states who also tend to evoke Christianity. So I'm I'm really interested how even if these ideas are able to move along these these digital pathways across the world and, and become globalized in a sense, how they are actually imported and then um, received or, or or tweaked when they come into an Australian context. Uh, because I, I assume that the, the, the religious angle doesn't appeal as much, even to generally right-wing Australian uh, activists. Agreed, definitely. And I think the distinction the distinction between here and many, but also I'd like to clarify, I guess, in the sense that, you know, there are, there are many perspectives on Christianity. And I was looking up some statistics on same-sex marriage 
you know, you've got, by some measures, 71% of, of Americans supporting same-sex marriage. So, so, so one of the dimensions that I see here is that you've got this, 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 this minority, this extreme minority that has disproportionate access to parliamentarians, to legislators, to media, uh, and then it can be amplified through through those networks. And I see I see that as a distinction, um, particularly in terms of networked and and also lit civil litigation by organisations like Mass Resistance and Warriors for Christ. We we just do mm. not have that level of organisation. So I see three points here. I see religion is maybe a, a springboard in, in the US context that's not going to cut it in Australia. Then you've got these; they're highly organised highly organised and seemingly well-funded and they've got access to media. But in Australia, to be able to, you know, justify any of these arguments on, on religious grounds, I mean, we're seeing a resurgence of that in protests in Sydney as well at the moment with, with um, you know, the vandalism of some LGBTQ flags and paraphernalia and what have you. But the broader debate is not going to be won on the grounds of religios re religiosity here. I just, we do not, I cannot see that happening. And that's because, and I, pick, I picked out the data here on, in terms of um, uh, Australia, UK, uh, sorry, England and Wales, and then the US. So mm -hmm. just a quick snapshot, in the 2021 Australian census, almost 10 million Australians reported having no religion. We only have 25 million people. <laughs> so so that, that is a huge distinction between us and you. Um, and so that's about 40% of Australians who identify as having no religion. Right. In, tw in 2021 in England and Wales, no religion was the second most common response encompassing 37% of that jurisdiction. So that's about um, 22 million people. And that's up from 14 million 10 years ago. But then in the States, so we've got 40% of Australia, no religion, about 40% in, in England and Wales, no religion. But but we've got three in um, three and three in 10 US adults are now religiously unaffiliated. So it's lower in the States. Uh, but as I said, uh, and and self-identified Christians make up 63% of the US population in 2021, and that's down from 75% a decade ago. But that's not the only story, as I've said, because I think US Christians and religious organizations are very well organized and 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 well funded in a way that Australians aren't. So I think that's a really essential aspect of the debate. That to me that that makes me want to know probe a little further with you about sort of how right because in the united states because there is that religious angle oftentimes there's a sense of morality that's really brought in uh, at the top right it's not just sort of child welfare is sort of there and there's some people want to make the this uh, if it's with trans issues or things like that it's with um you know they'll kind of try to make a sort of more sanitized kind of medical argument but really the the moral stuff is there kind of most of the time um, and so that makes me curious about the kind of um, rhetorical strategies that get deployed um, in in the Australian context or in the, in the context of of England and Wales. And of course, I'm I'm, I'm definitely angling us a little bit towards the issue of of turfs, uh, which is which is uh, not a strong phenomenon in the United States, uh, but is obviously in England and, and, and Wales. And I'd be curious to know if it's if it's getting traction in Australia. Um, because to my mind, and, and for, for listeners who, list, who may not be familiar with the term, it stands for trans-exclusionary radical feminists. It's the idea that it is a feminist issue um, to not recognize uh, trans individuals 
uh, as women, uh, that, that is a feminist issue to sort of protect women's spaces from trans individuals. And that can even a, a kind of fall down uh, the hill to issues like drag performances being seen as sort of a mockery of, of, of feminine traits, et cetera. And, and it's, it's, it's one of those kind of things that, that tends to uh, dodge at least the traditional right left spectrum a little at times. Um, there, there are people who fashion themselves quite maybe centrist or even progressive who, who have adopted probably most famously from the American audience being JK. Yep. Uh, and I think a lot of Americans also are probably baffled by that because of the lack of knowledge about the British uh, political context of, of this movement. All that to say, I'm curious about, the rhetorical strategies and how much they they do emerge from other moral grounds that are not rooted in right religious claims about sort of what's good and right and, and pure. Yeah, I, I think firstly what I would say, uh, and this is borne out in um, in research on on Dugan's homo normativity, and, and what I've seen with my analysis of a lot of media of, of responses to drag queen story time is that we've got you know uh, it's it, it's okay to be gay. From some of those commentators, it's okay to be gay, but you know, uh, drag queens dressing up as 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 women with with fake breasts and whatever. Why is that necessary? It's a gaudy costume. It minimizes some um, female identity and what have you. Um, that's one element of the debate that was playing out, say, pre-COVID in the United States and in the UK, definitely, mm-hmm. um, and I think to a lesser extent in Australia. But then what we've seen, and I make the distinction here because you know. COVID was a blessing in some ways because it basically shut down protests against Drag Queen Storytime, which is a childhood literacy program that combines drag with, with childhood literacy programs at public libraries. It, it just stopped the, the in-person protest against Drag Queen Storytime events because um, they, were, they were ramping up in 2018, 2019, and then stopped in 2020. But we've seen a resumption. And to your point, Alan, what we've seen now is a shift, particularly in the United States, and I'll get back to Australia and the UK in a minute. We've seen this shift now, whereas, you know, the commentary in relation to drag queen story time pre-COVID was, you know, the gays are okay. It's just don't dress up as women and and, and trivialize, mm. you know, womanhood. Since then, we've had the gays against groomers rhetoric go ballistic in the United States. It's been it's been used, you know, the the um that very benign uh, Florida bill that was titled, I think, you know, rights and education for children, was then picked up by the by LGBTQ groups. And said it was a gays against it was a it was a bill against gays. And then the anti-LGBT groups have then said that it's it's um it's an anti-grooming bill. So we, so the gays are now back front and center in this whole debate and, and perceived as a harm to children again. That's that's being conflated as it is over time and through these sexual emergencies that Ballant has has talked about since the 90s. Um and then with turfs, so the, the protest in Melbourne. The anti the anti um, trans protest in Melbourne. There were turfs there. Yes. That is that is definitely a debate that's playing out on Twitter and social media, uh, and people getting cancelled. It's highly vitriolic. It's highly um, what's the word polarized. But that's definitely playing out here. And J.K. Rowling is the probably the most visible um, person that's caught up in those debates in the UK. Yeah, and I find I find her to be an interesting avatar. In the United States, when I try to talk to people to say, I, you know, in no way excusing, I think, the stances she's taken, but to be like, they'll be confused. They're like, I didn't think that JK was, you know, a, a right winger. I'm like, well, in, in the British context, it just doesn't read this way, right? It just doesn't. I mean, I uh, in the United States, it's, we've drawn our, we've, we've polarized 
Um, the partisan polarization in the United States is such that uh, it's become pretty clear at this point that if you're for trans rights, you read as a Democrat. And if you're not, you read as a Republican. And there's not really a lot of in between. Um, and then you you have some Republicans who, at this point, they're already the ones who are breaking with their party on other things like like Trump and stuff who are sort of saying this is maybe not maybe we shouldn't be doing this in terms of the the crackdown. But generally speaking, it reads pretty split in terms of the partisan issues. And I don't know if that valence is really the same in 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 Australia in terms of labor's commitment to to protecting these groups versus the this really going to confuse American listeners, the Australian Liberal Party, uh, which is the center right party uh, uh, position on them. Um, which I'm actually really curious about that. If it, if it does it, I know in the UK it doesn't quite read as a neatly left right thing. In Australia, does it? it? So this is so what I would like to do because a lot of my background is in media studies and 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 I worked in corporate communications for years. So the big one of the biggest problems we're facing, and you're definitely facing it in the states. We have less of an issue with it at the moment. We're, we've got these polarities. Okay, mainstream media companies are still trying to get back the the, the loss of advertising revenue. This is very you know media structural, but um, this poll, this you know you're woke or you're not woke. Right. Now, what does it actually mean? Not a lot. There's a spectrum of political perspective that that has been lost because you're left or you're right, which is which is a construct. You know, so what we've seen, okay, and what I can relate to you in Australia is, you know, political parties aside, we had a massive growth of the crossbench. So Mm. independence. So that I think it expanded by 10 10 parliamentarians. We went from six to 16 in the last federal election. We've had the worst Uh, turnout for, yeah. Do you want to explain? Lost to an independent as well, didn't she? She didn't, she, 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 she lost, no, she lost. She, Catherine Deves lost, yeah, and she wasn't an incumbent anyway. But right. she lost to an independent, right. and so we we've, we've seen um, this massive expansion and loss mainly to the Conservative Party. Big loss to the Conservative Party, the the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mis it's misnamed because <laughs> it used to be it used to be liberal in the economic and moral sense, but it's lost its way with morality, with, right. with people like Catherine Dees. But but my point is that Australia is we've also got prefer um, preferential voting. So mm-hmm. our voting system, and we have compulsory voting, so most people vote. It forces everyone into the middle. So that middle, though, has, is highly contested because we've got all these independents. Because people said to both major parties, no, you do not represent me. Um, we've had this manufactured two-party political system that's worked relatively well up until, say, 2010. Not working so well now. You've had gridlock in the States for, God, how many, you know, in terms I... of Congress. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It's and and the, and the whole the whole left right just just doesn't work and we're and Australians are, are um I think are prag- on the whole quite pragmatic and see through the bluster and mm. yeah we've had a lot of nonsense here for a decade a lot of political nonsense so. yeah uh, uh yeah I think Americans would be fascinated by some of the the inner workings of sort of Canberra parliamentary uh politics especially all the backstabbing um uh, but you know um so the other I suppose the flip side we're talking a little bit about how um some of this anti-trans stuff can can travel internationally so I'm really interested in your work you use the term digiqueer um, and and look at 
um, these online expressions and, and communities and pathways. So I'm really curious if you could unpack that a little for listeners and talk a little bit about, I, I, to me, it seems that that this is, as always with these kinds of issues, when we're thinking about in the 21st century, sort of globalized challenges in Western liberal democracies, there's bad stuff that gets globalized. Uh, and there's lots of good things that also get globalized uh, and can travel. So I'm curious if you could un- first unpack the term a little bit for listeners and then talk a little bit about um, some of the ways in which I think those uh, uh, pathways have been beneficial to those communities for for finding connection in, in transnational contexts. Yeah, definitely. So, so digi- this term digi-queer, so digital queer, uh, it, it came out of research I was conducting on the relationship between bystander social media video of police excessive force uh, and its relationship to trust and confidence in police in LGBTQ plus communities. And so since that research, the notions broadened to, to convey the relationship between career expression uh, and the digital media technologies that might be used to both empower diversity of expression and to shut it down through vilification, through shadow banning, where, you know, you, you, you're blocked from a site that you don't know, uh, and then through, you know, rabbit holes where people who are searching for unwanted same-sex attraction will be sent down a rabbit hole that will misinform them about the perils of same-sex attraction, if there are, if there are any, and um, then um, misinform them about conversion therapy. So big issues here. But um, that term I use as a frame to put technology at the forefront of how identities are being negotiated because much of it is happening through technologies now. There's there's research, digital media technology, there's research on, for example, trans negotiation of identity before coming out uh, and these safe pockets online where you can do that. So, you know, we know that digital media, digital platforms, they they are incredible for self-expression if you're in a safe pocket. If you're not, or that safe pocket turns into something that, that you didn't expect, like hate raids on the streaming platform Twitch. Mm-hmm. That were actually, you know, these hashtags were uh, and and aspects of those of raids. Raids were a positive thing that trans the trans community asked for because what it did was allowed you once you'd finished streaming to send your stream to like-minded people. Mm-hmm. But then that was basically um, taken over by bots and hackers. Uh, and then, then used to turn hate against trans communities, um, same-sex attracted people, and, and so on. So that's what the DigiQueer is trying to emphasize: the technological dimensions of expression for better and for worse. Right. One of the things I think that that that, that looking at that in your research makes me think about is how much, and it, this is also something you know. It, Pulaski we emphasize this idea of place-based approaches to to problems and really and really not just sort of saying you know there are global problems and they happen locally but like really in in, in putting where uh, a particular issue is playing out at the foreground um but place is so much um circling around all these conversations right we're talking about you know the the the, the digital and, and the idea of finding places online where you can be yourself. And then also when we're talking earlier about policing uh, drag shows or policing uh, trans individuals, so much of the the language that's now being used has to do with things like, um, you know, when we mentioned TERFs, uh, protecting women's spaces and places. Uh, when we talk in the United States about uh, drag shows, uh, something like, you know, 
what kind of space is this? Is this a family? You know, in other words, is you know the the the, the sort of argument that's happening is this notion that what's being done is not suitable to the place in which. Uh, it's unfolding. And I find all of this very, very interesting, right? It's this idea of sort of, well, there are places for you, but they're just not here. And one of the things that this also makes me think of a lot that we were talking about before I started recording, and I'm really uh, interested in having you unpack for people now, is alongside that, I think that for at least a lot of Americans, and I think probably people when they think even in a global context to a degree, there's a sense that there are places where these people belong. And, you know, in the political contestations right now, that's not in libraries or not in children's spaces or not in women's spaces. But more geographically, I think a lot of people think, well, they belong in cosmopolitan centers as well, right? They don't belong, you know, if you're concerned about, you know, the laws we're going to write in Tennessee or Mississippi, well, really, you know, the place for you is, New York or San Francisco or Sydney or London, places that are sort of famous for uh, having pride parades and being multicultural and cosmopolitan. I mean, famous today, right? Because I think we could, even in those places, have conversations around the fact that historically, it's really they've been, they were often, queer communities were often relegated to neighborhoods, right? This is your place. These these blocks, that's your place, right? Um but all of that leaves out the idea that a lot of places, and we push back on this a lot with the idea of heartlands as not being a monolith, that a lot of these rural or even not necessarily rural, but regional or provincial places away from those big giant centers are actually quite diverse, are quite vibrant, are full of, obviously not just full of of people of uh, varying ethnic backgrounds, but people of varying gender identity and sexual orientation and are, are, are full of all of these communities. I've only been to uh, one drag show and I went while I was at a Christian affiliated college and I went to one in Little Rock uh, and, you know, uh, so go, you know, right there. And I went with a friend who was also at the time a student there. We're both graduated, so they can't do anything about it now. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, that all that to say, that's an example of, Something that totally doesn't align, I think, with people's sense of the boxes in which we'd like to place these things geographically, socially, in terms of various kinds of locations. So I'm interested in probing that sense of how often we try to compartmentalize queer groups into having the places that belong to them and then the places that don't belong to them um, and how that butts up against these current conversations. Yeah, I think that the the current conversations are okay for the legislation in Tennessee, for example, that's banning drag performance taking place on any public property in the state, mm. uh, as well as any location where people under eighteen could be present. Now, I think that, and, and then there's the, again we've got conflation on on one level with with gays against groomer rhetoric and the harm of children, and then we've got the then we've got the conflation of adult entertainers, drag performers performing in front of children. Now. Drag performers perform a spectrum of of um, expression. You know, they they can equally read to children as as pre- perform a lewd show somewhere. So I think that again, back to the binaries, that just doesn't help anybody. But if if you if you need if you want to make the show age appropriate, fine. Um, and then from a geographic point of view, I can reference Newcastle as an example. There's a drag queen from Newcastle called Timberlina, 
who I caught up with in Sydney a couple of weeks ago, and he he's done tours of Western New South Wales, you know, going to places like Broken Hill, Mudgee, these small towns. I grew up in a town called Orange, by the way, Alan, a, t- a town of maybe, you know, 35,000 people on a farm. So I, I get it in terms of the heartland. But um, he talks about do- doing these tours, the farmers coming up to him, loving it. And I guess my point here, yeah. to your point, is that that these identities uh, exist in most places. It's just that they're either not visible or it's unsafe to be visible and so on. And I think that COVID's also provided this with an opportunity where people we've got to, people moving out of the cities, people are moving to Tasmania, people in the States, I'm sure, are doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm thinking that we might see a, um, you know, more visibility because you're going to have more concentration of diverse people that, that feel safe enough to be able to express themselves. Um, but the whole idea of the city, country, regional divide is... I think it's just an artifact of, of the, the fact that, you know, yeah, it's just been framed in that way and, and media frames it in that way. The rare, you know, country gay um, or the, way, the the only trans person in a, in a regional city, you know, um, there's probably more. It's just that they're not, they're not visible or they don't feel safe to be visible is my sense. And that, to me, that's that's always, you know, the, the, the thing that's frustrating in these conversations, right? How often safety is foregrounded, uh, but it's foregrounded oftentimes, right, in terms of restricting the rights of people who already don't feel very safe, right? You know, um, uh, and and this gets at the politics of, right, um, people who who are trans rights activists have have mentioned, you know, the especially as you're going through a transition, just being out in public can be quite harrowing, and some of these laws, like the one in Tennessee. It's not entirely obvious if particularly a person who is trans, who is early in their transition or um, might still be read to other people as someone who who has, you know, if they're a, a, a trans woman who who reads to some people as 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 having masculine traits in a way that could somehow be tied up in this language of criminalizing, essentially performing the other gender in public just by living yes uh, that's a very disturbing line of thought yes and I, and I think I think too Alan t- to my mind why do these why do the why does this conduct need to be legislated anyway mm-hmm. as a starting point I mean you know if for, even from a Republican not a not US Republican Party but you know Republicanism Dominion freedom from freedom from domination why do these things need to be legislated? It, it, it potentially, as you pointed out, criminalizes a whole range of conduct that is not currently criminalized. It's ambiguous. It will have a chilling effect on expression. We know that if people are not free to express themselves, that we saw it through COVID, the whole range of suffering happens as a consequence of having to, to um, subvert particular perspectives or what have you. So first of all, I would question why it's being legislated at all. Um, and um, and then um, you know what what are the what are the implications the unintended consequences I think they're potentially huge so I, I find it troubling that this 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 wave of of well, the bills and some of it's been in it's no some of it's now law like Tennessee but right. really yeah why leg, why do you need to legislate it I mean I think that raises a crucial point that we're really concerned with at Pulaski which is. Um, the, the slippage in in the especially the liberal part, obviously in democracy, but especially in the liberal part of liberal democracy, and not not just in the clear cut ways of laws being passed. Those are those are the big you know 
five alarm problems, but also in the broader public's commitment to these principles, right? In terms of how much they're willing to accept of limitations on, on other people's rights to just sort of stake a claim in society and in the communities that they reside in. Um, and I think that's something I'm very interested in, in terms of, in the United States, I think the, the problem is very clear. We have a, we have a big problem. I mean, there are states and, and the federal nature of our system means that there's quite a lot of power handed to many of these governments. So, so we've got a very big problem. Um, because there are places where these laws are being passed, um, you know, restrictions on on track shows, restrictions on um, children who want to have gender affirming care, uh, all, uh, ambiguous laws that may in fact impact adults who are already in transitioning, et cetera. I'm curious if you are as worried in this sort of big picture sense in Australia, or if it's playing out in a more regionalized way in yeah, terms I- of that. Yeah. Well, I, I think, and the the other example that I would use from a United States point of view is is the um, the pushback in Kansas on mm-hmm. on the on the attempt there to um, redefine abortion, you know, what the, the legality of abortion. And right. I think I think that um, you know I think that the, the certain constituencies of the world over will breathe a huge sigh of relief uh, that, that that had actually happened. But also, I've all, it was also given my research the the resources that go into protecting basic rights like mm-hmm. that are phenomenal. Uh, and good on Canvas for getting it together, but highly atomized. So uh, I think we were talking earlier in the US. You might have you might have given your complex structure. You might have county by county differences on 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 particular forms of social regulation. Uh, in Australia, I'm um, I think I'm not as alarmed as I would be if I was in the United States, given what's happening at a, at a legislative level. We've got I think Victoria going the other way. Is they're legislating against conversion therapy, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think back to Australia being a um, you know, preferential voting system that literally pushes everybody into the middle. We have less religious affiliation, so there's less capacity to justify those arguments. You know, the, the bedrock might be religious, um, but you can then amplify that to harm of children in other ways. So I'm not I'm not concerned immediately, but I'm I'm watching with you know right. with concern. That what happens in the United States, particularly from a media production point of view, can make its way here. We also see with Proud Boys neo-Nazi protests that's happening here. It's um, stunning to me that the Proud Boys would make it to. I mean, just and so depressing as well because it's such a such a ridiculous. I mean, obviously their their beliefs are terrible, but they're also just sort of a, such a farcical kind of group. Well, uh, but I think yeah, they, they're like a. See, this is with. You know, with Trump, clearly, we, we saw, you know, the last year, well, 2019 saw this massive surge of anti-LGBT hate groups. Mm-hmm. And then we saw, then we saw off the back of the Capitol riot, we saw a massive increase in enrollment in Proud Boys membership uh, in, in 2022. So I think really what we're also trying to do and what I'm trying to do with my research is we're trying to make sense of, say, the years 2015 to 2020. Because clearly what was playing out across, you know, computational politics with Brexit. Uh, mm-hmm. With with Russia and its malign influence, espionage has become the top problem for everybody. Um, right. We're only really just beginning to get a handle on this, but and social media channels have been running. What well, Facebook was set up in two thousand and four, YouTube in two thousand and five, but it's getting worse in terms of them not addressing the hate because it's been amplified and what have you. So I'm I'm still worried about that. I see the pressing issues are that online hate is still not addressed adequately. I think TikTok from the 
the report out of the EU in 2022, TikTok is the only digital platform that has addressed that has improved their record on addressing um, online hate. Mm. Um, so, so none of the American ones, um, and obviously Ch um, Chinese own a um, bite dance of TikTok, and um, that's the, one of the main issues. This intersection with far right extremist groups, um, mm. that's obviously troubling as well, and particularly when politicians are getting involved. But let's see where that goes. We've got this increase at the moment. Um, let's see how that plays out. I don't know where that's going to go. To to bring us just back a few moments when we were talking about some of the concerns you mentioned, like I mentioned, right? The fact that these 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 kinds of identities don't just exist in you know the Sydneys and the San Francisco's of the world. The you grew up in regional Australia. I'm obviously from from Arkansas, which is a pretty uh, flyover country, as many Americans would call it, right? So, and and you know that's where I first encountered. Uh, uh, queer culture, not actually, you know, in New York, in Arkansas. Uh, and so um, some of your research has also looked at the relationship between uh, queer communities and policing in uh, Newcastle and the Hunter region, which for people not as familiar with Australia's region, north of Sydney, vibrant agricultural region, Newcastle is the main city that kind of anchors this, but there's a lot of uh, agricultural production, a lot of very good wine country in the Hunter uh, and other agricultural production as well. Uh, but I think that's an interesting pathway into, right, a very specific place that is, it is regional, right? Newcastle is large in the sense that it's the second biggest city in New South Wales, but much smaller than Sydney, right? Um, and, and, yeah. and it is a regional area that, that probably gives some insight. And I'm curious about um, what some of that has maybe um, revealed to you about the nature of some of those relationships in these places that are more rural, more agricultural, away from the big uh, cosmopolitan center. Yeah, I think I think it's and Newcastle's fascinating because you know it's 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 as you as you rightly say it's it's had an agricultural history, but it's also had a had a huge mining history, mm -hmm. uh, and those industries have often and, and increasingly are in conflict in terms of which one's going to be prioritised. But that's also meant that it was you know heavily regulated, I guess, socially through mining like companies like BHP. But also through the Catholic and, and Anglican churches, so it's a fascinating study, and um, also its relationship with Sydney. So it's, it's two hours north of Sydney. For listeners who may not know where it is, it's about a population of about seven hundred thousand people on the coast, like most of most Australians live on the coast, and it's come it's coming to a, a you know its second renaissance at the moment with lots of wineries, good food, um, lots of apartments, like most um, you know lots of cities in Western liberal democracies, um, and so. The policing relationship is interesting because we have a federation like the United States, uh, and so Newcastle's in New South Wales. So there was this kind of like this relationship, definitely with the judiciary and the police between New South Wales, uh, between Newcastle and Sydney. But obviously, Newcastle has its own culture. If we if we then shift to the nineties um, and 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 what I said, conservative in the fifties, like most of Australia, uh, and then you have the expansion of human rights in the late sixties and seventies. Then you have massive pushback in the 70s from the Newcastle community, particularly over, over the a death of a, of a gay worker at one of the local newspapers and the, the invasive way that the police handled that. They interviewed, they, they interviewed a phenomenal amount of people. They were, they were threatening to out people uh, and so on. So there, this is, that was in, God, what year was that? Was that 1977, I think? Uh, and then we've got the first Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras in 1978. So... You can see locally what might have been happening in Newcastle. What was happening in Sydney was happening. Its own version was happening in Newcastle. 
Um, and but then by the nineties, you've got cases there about the need to recognise um, same-sex couples coming out of Newcastle. So Newcastle then became instrumental in shifting the political landscape on acceptance of same-sex marriage and, and um, same-sex relationships. If we speed dial then to the, the same-sex marriage postal survey in 2017, I think Newcastle recorded the highest yes vote outside of metropolitan areas. So, yeah, it, it's it's a fascinating case study in the way that I think uh, expression of diverse identities, sexual identity and gender expression has completely shifted. Uh, Tasmania would probably be the other one because Tasmania, say, homosexuality wasn't decriminalised there until 1997. Um, and now it's one of the, you know, I think they tout themselves in some of the paraphernalia as a rainbow state. But um, but you can see, you can see how communities can, communities have can be highly effective. And I think, I, you know, I think back to what's happening in the States, I'm sure that some community, well, no, I don't want to make an assumption, but the resources it takes, the time it takes to get organised, and you're up against it with networked anti-LGBTQ stuff uh, in a way that we are just, we just aren't. So, um, but I also know that, there, that, you know, LGBT communities are highly effective. Um, it's just about, and, and I, I think too that with the media, like there's a lot of noise about what's going on, but Back to the statistic on US people that support same-sex marriage. If you've got seventy-one percent of the population supporting same-sex marriage, mm -hmm. then um, arguably, I mean, how many people are really uh, supporting these? You know, the sexual emergency over over trans rights and drag queen story time. It's just they're very loud, is my sense. I think the downside in the United States is because of the first past the post system and the, yeah. the power that state governments have. And this, it, it, it's something that we're really preoccupied with as well, right at, at Pulaski is uh, there's, there's just a strong incentive for people to leave. Um, you know, yeah. whereas I've been saying uh, it's just a, it's a, we've both been saying, right. It's a false story that, that, that queer people in these places only exist in Sydney and San Francisco and, and, and in, in New York. The, the downside is the flip side, I suppose is, there are plenty of 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 queer people in in Arkansas who are looking around and saying, maybe it is time to pack up and go to Seattle, uh, because because you know it's you know I live in a state where um, you know because it's become so so partisan, right? Um, and because the issue now reads in such a polarized partisan sense, and because the party that supports trans rights in in the state can can't really do better than about thirty five percent. Uh, there are long-term, I, I don't blame people for mulling leaving. And I, I think I'm also curious if you, if you see that there's a shift, you know, in Australia, if there's any kind of pull for people from regional communities to get out, or, you know, I know that the Sydney, the, the, I know Australia's biggest cities are, are growing. And I know a lot of that's just economic opportunity and, 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 um, you know, they're, they're wonderful cities, but I'm curious how much drives, how much, Cultural acceptance derives internal migration in Australia the way I, it absolutely does here in certain parts of the country. Yes, I don't. Oh, I don't know if I've got a simple answer to that. What I, What I know is that I've had friends of mine who stay in Victoria. They have they've left Sydney to go to to regional Victoria to, mm. to live on a farm to rewild the farm, put in native species, this kind of stuff. I I think I see with. Having grown up in Orange, another regional town, and my my nephews and niece 
None of them live in Orange. They're they're not they're not um they're not LGBTQ, but they've all left for, for economic purposes. One to go to university in Canberra, um, the other two, one's in Newcastle, one's in Sydney. And I think I think it'd be a mixed bag on that front, Alan. I'm sure there will be pe- people that would be leaving because of their personal circumstances related to their sexual identity mm-hmm. uh, and or gender identity, but then others. We saw this massive push to the regions, Newcastle and Orange in particular, during COVID. Mm. And I think we're, I think we're yet to see what the benefits and detractions of that are. You know, you might end up with there's another couple that I know that moved to Tasmania. So, so um, I think. I, I don't know, to be honest. Maybe it's a research project. <laughs> no, that's, that sounds like a really interesting question. Yeah. Um, so uh, we have now the, we come to the, uh, we've been talking about, I think, quite quite serious and heavy things. But we've come to the, the, the part where I ask you a chatter question, which is, uh, and I'm glad we got to, in the course of the conversation, introduce uh, the Hunter and Newcastle in terms of what they are. So I think most people, if they're coming to Australia, are going to, you know, I we when we when I went as a kid, Sydney, Brisbane, all those places. But if they manage to make it to the Hunter, to to Newcastle, do you have anything that you would say? Uh, anything, you know, it could be a, a national park, it could be a, a a museum, it could be a restaurant, it could be a particular kind of experience that you would be like, you know, if you want to get that experience that isn't city you're in the hunter that is that that is quintessentially this place uh that they should do or try uh, what would you say I, i've got a, i've got a couple of places so one one would definitely be redhead beach okay which is which is uh what is it i mean it's it's got a beautiful headland and there's a great cafe there and so you can go there on a saturday morning it's also it's also next to a massive sand dune so i think that the hunter provides um access to a hell of a lot of nature and water in a very short, um, you know, very um, concentrated spaces. So I think that's that's definitely one. Um, Redhead Beach. There's also a, a great restaurant downtown called Signal Box. It's the old railway Signal Box. They, cool. Yeah, it's really cool. But it's got great Australian seafood, great Australian wine. And I would go there, yeah, for dinner, definitely. Those two things. Awesome. Well, Dr. Justin Ellis, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. Thanks, Helen. The Periphery is a production of the Pulaski Institution. I've been your host, Alan Elrod. Our music was written, recorded, and produced by Brandon Ragsdale and Cody Smith. Thank you for coming, and please join us next time.